Well, good morning, church. What are y'all doing here? Christmas is Saturday. Come on. I know you got some shopping to do. Well, until then, we're in week three of our Advent series where we're answering the question, why did the Father send His Son into the world? And uh, I, I mean, you know, I mean, in this room, we know that there's no more important question for us to be able to answer correctly uh, during this season than that one. Uh, but outside of these walls, most people are not asking that question. They're asking about how to get the best deals on the, the latest gadgets and whether or not they can get them here by Christmas. Outside of these walls, consumerism reigns supreme. Outside of these walls, Christmas is just a holiday, not a holy day. And the manger and the baby in the manger are just a knickknack on their shelf. Outside of these walls, the only saint that matters is old Saint Nick. Right? Well, who was old Saint Nick? Now, we talk about him. You've heard about him all your life. Who was Saint Nicholas? Well, here he is. St. Nicholas was a bishop in Turkey in the uh, late 3rd and early 4th century. Uh, A Christian born to a Christian family, a very wealthy family that was known uh, for his generosity, his giving of gifts to children. Uh, There's a story or legend of him uh, sneaking in and paying the dowry of uh, three sisters. You have an image of it right here. Bringing gold so that they could be married. He was a generous guy, a kind person, like I said, a giver of gifts to children. He lived, uh, like I said, during the uh, late 3rd, early 4th century. And in the early 4th century, a heresy arose within the church. A guy named Arius was teaching this heresy, Arianism, uh, that Jesus was not the Son of God. He was not God in the flesh. Instead, He was simply God's first created being. Like He was, He was exalted. He was awesome, but He was not God. And so in 325 AD, the Emperor Constantine, the first Christian Roman Emperor, Uh, called a council in the city of Nicaea. Uh, 318 bishops showed up to discuss and debate and write out a creed of what the church has always held to about the person and work of Christ. And they gave Arius a hearing. Arius stood before this council and began to share his ideas, his heretical ideas of who Jesus was to the point that one kind old saint, giver of gifts, could not take it anymore. And St. Nicholas walked down to where Arius was and he slapped him to the ground. Man, I love that. Arius was then arrested. Uh, Not Arius, but Nicholas was then arrested. He was put in chains, put in a cell. He had dishonored himself as a bishop. He was stripped of his priestly robes. And the next day, when they went to see him in his cell, he was unchained, back in his priestly robes, reading the Gospels. And so they released him. They sent him back to the council. 
And him, along with 317 other bishops, affirmed these words, We believe in one, Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. The Nicene Creed that Christians for the last 2,000 years have said together, our last 1,700 years have proclaimed together. So it gave us that. It also gave us my favorite Christmas meme of all time. Here it is. I came to punch heretics and give presents to kids. And I'm all out of presents. Isn't that the best? Well, uh, St. Nicholas slapping heretics to the ground is not the image one usually associates with Christmas. Like, is Christmas a fight or a festival? Growing up at my house, it was a little bit of both. But I'm sure that's not the kind of thing that Nicholas would have approved of. Like, is Christmas about a war or is it about worship? Is the focus a battle or is it Bethlehem? Well, maybe, guys, just maybe, it's both. That's why when we answer these questions, questions like what's the true meaning of Christmas and why did the Father send His Son into the world, we need to start with the Bible. Like the first week, we said that Jesus came to bring light to a dark world. That's why He came. To bring hope to the hopeless. Do you believe that? I mean, Jesus said, I have come as light to shine in this dark world so that those who put their trust in Me will no longer remain in the dark. He came to bring light to a dark world. Last week, Pastor Michael preached about how Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. To bring joy to those who are enslaved by their own passions and to their own past. Like, Do you believe that? Now, Jesus Himself said healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. I mean, when you wonder why Jesus came into the world, you have to go to the source. And this morning, this is what we're going to be talking about, that Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. To bring peace by waging war on all evil. Like the disciple John called in the Gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, tells us this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Like Christmas is a time of peace on earth and goodwill toward men, but that peace came at a great price. We understand that, right? We live in a country and enjoy freedom that was purchased for us by others at a great price. 
Freedom is never free. Someone paid the price for your spiritual freedom. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so what are the works of the devil? Like to get a clear picture, we need to return to the very beginning uh, to a time when the works of the devil were not evident. Like in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we read about a time where creation was at perfect harmony with itself. Like where it was at perfect shalom. This idea of peace inside and out. Like all of creation was at peace, enjoying the shalom of God. Like mankind was at peace with themselves. Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship. No conflict. No turmoil, no, no doubt, no shame. Mankind was at perfect harmony with all of creation, no fear. And, and mankind was in perfect harmony with God Himself, experiencing shalom with their Maker. And yet God tells them, I have one command. You get everything in the world, but this one thing, that tree over there, Don't touch it. Don't eat from it. If you eat from it, you will die. And then, like, seems like just a matter of moments later in the next chapter, chapter three, you have the serpent arriving and asking Eve, did God really say that you can't eat that fruit? Well, that's messed up. Like, what's he thinking? See, that's our enemy's way of saying that God expects too much of us. I mean, look at this fruit. It's amazing. Why wouldn't he want you to eat it? And so Eve responds, well, you know, he said we could eat of all the other fruit. Everything is ours. He just doesn't want us to eat of this fruit or we will die. And Satan counters with, you will not die. See, he's implying that God's just all talk. Right? There's not going to be any consequences to your actions. At least consequences that you can't manage. And then the serpent says this, in fact, God knows that the day that you eat this fruit, you're going to become like God, deciding good and evil for yourself. You see, the serpent wants them to think that God is holding out on us. And so as you read that, like, what are the works of the devil? Well, lies. Lies are the works of the devil. Like lies are the air that he breathes. Jesus said it this way. He said that he, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And sure enough, as soon as Adam and Eve take the fruit and sin and fall out of grace into themselves. Satan is silent because his work is done. Because he really wants them to think, man, there's no coming back from this. We've blown it and there's no more rescue. And so our first parents sin, they fall. And then comes the curse. Shalom is broken. And we read in Romans 8 that all of creation groans as a result of this. With sin comes death. We read about in Romans 5 verse 12. So what are the works of the devil? Death. 
lies and death, brokenness, groaning, no satisfaction, loss of shalom, everything in creation is corrupted by the sin of man, giving into the temptation of the enemy. And at that point when all should be lost in the midst of a curse given to the serpent, God says this, I will put hostility, not shalom, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike His heel. Theologians call this the first Gospel. The first announcement of Messiah that He would come as the seed of a woman to crush the head of the serpent. Hebrews 2 explains it this way, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. And only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could, we, could He set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Guys, Satan rules over man because of the fear of death. Haven't we seen that play out in the last two years? Both outside and inside the church. People are captured by this terror of death. Even believers who know that God is absolutely sovereign and that they will not die a second early that all of their days were written in a book before one of them came to be. They're terrified. Our world is terrified and will do anything and give away any freedom as long as they could have one more moment, one more day, one more year, any hope. But understand, guys, on the cross, Jesus forever destroyed Satan's power base by destroying death. Colossians 2 puts it this way, He, Jesus, disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by His victory over them on the cross. Jesus triumphed. And the language of spiritual rulers and authorities points to the end goal of the works of the devil, which is spiritual slavery to sin. Jesus said that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, the thief comes to take. But Jesus says, I came to give. The thief comes to kill, but I came to give life. The, the thief comes and he destroys, but I restore. So what are the works of the devil? Lies. Lies. Death, slavery to sin. In fact, that's the context of John, 1 John chapter 3, where he tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The context is sin. He says in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. 
Like the idea of practicing sin, making a practice of sin in the original language here is this present active indicative. It's that you, your lifestyle, your identity is wrapped up in these sinful practices that you sold your heart to. That's who you are. In verse 8, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so John is warning us here, don't give yourself to things that Jesus came to destroy. Emptiness, groaning, loss of peace, anger, lust, wrath, selfishness. Don't give yourself to the things that Jesus came to destroy. These are destined for destruction. In fact, that's exactly what happened on the cross. When speaking of His impending death on the cross, His being lifted up, Jesus says this in John 12, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In anticipating the cross and looking toward the cross, Jesus says that this is the judgment of the world. Literally, the crisis of this world. This is the critical moment for all of humanity. This is the turning point. This is where sin will be judged. And this is where the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out. That's a violent word in the original. It signifies the definitive end of Satan's reign. Like the cross was not Satan's triumph. It was his defeat. Once and for all. And so if you're like me, right now I'm thinking, shouldn't this Christmas message be a little bit more Christmassy? Right? Like we're talk, talking about Satan and we're talking about destruction and we're talking about the cross. What about ho, ho, ho? What about a few gifts? What about the babe in the manger? Like what's going on here? I kind of think of the same thing whenever I drive around my neighborhood and you see people's Christmas decorations. I mean, people's Christmas decorations nowadays, like used to be, used to be at least there was like, you know, a nativity in somebody's yard or at least Santa Claus. But now, like down the street from my house, the Christmas decorations are inflatable donuts. What in the world? What do inflatable donuts have to do with Christmas? You have an eating disorder, right? I drive around my neighborhood and I see Frosty. That kind of makes sense. But then I see penguins. Penguins are from the South Pole. Like, what are they doing in your yard for Christmas? And I see candy canes and the other day I was driving around my neighborhood with my in-laws and I saw it had to be 12 foot tall a giant inflatable dragon with a Christmas hat on like a Santa Claus hat and I thought what in the world does a giant dragon have to do with Christmas well let me tell you turn to Revelation chapter 12 and you will see in Revelation 12, verse 1, it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Who is this? 
It says she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. So we read in Revelation 12 that John sees a great sign. The idea of a sign indicates that this is symbolic language. Right? These are symbols or signs pointing to something else or someone else. And there's three characters in this brief passage. The first one like we'll look at is the dragon. There's a dragon, there's a woman, there's a child. Like who is this dragon? That's a very easy one to figure out because in verse 9 it tells us that this dragon is the great serpent of old. Satan. Like he's called a dragon here. And in fact, 13 times in the Scripture, Satan is referred to as a dragon. A mythological creature known for destruction because Satan is a destroyer bent on the destruction of everything that God has made. His size indicates how powerful he is and his color, red, indicates that he's filled with rage. And his seven heads and seven crowns and ten horns indicates a great level of authority that's given to him. It says that his tail sweeps away a third of the stars. And in the Old Testament, sometimes angels are referred to as stars. So who's, who's the pregnant woman? That you can guess, right? I mean, does the image remind you of anything? I mean, she's clothed in the sun, standing upon the moon, wearing a crown with 12 stars in it. Like that's Joseph's dream from uh, Genesis chapter 37, right? With his mom and his father, the sun and the moon, and his brothers, the stars. See, I believe that this symbolically refers to the nation of Israel. In fact, the remnant of Israel that would bring forth the Messiah. I think it refers to a person named Mary. So who is the child who came to rule? Once again, that's an easy one. This is the Messiah, Jesus. One scholar writes this. He says, notice that John does not use the word sign with reference to the child. The woman is a sign. The dragon is a sign, but the child, but not the child. The woman points beyond herself to another reality. The dragon points beyond himself to another reality. The child does not point beyond himself to another reality. He is the reality. We are not going to find a literal woman clothed in the sun. We are not going to find a literal dragon with seven heads and ten horns, but we are going to find a male child, a son. 
You see, what John is describing here is the Christmas story. Like what John is describing here is the nativity. I mean, this is Bethlehem. This is that babe born in the manger from heaven's perspective. Like Eugene Peterson writes, this is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. This is an apocalyptic Christmas story. Like when the veil between the earthly realm and the spiritual realm is lifted, this is what you see. I mean, those shepherds come to a stable and see a babe laying in a manger and they bow their heads and they worship and they hear the sounds and they smell the smells and they do not know what is going on in the heavenly realm. A war is being raged. The gauntlet has been cast down. One scholar writes this, the incarnation of the Son of God was nothing less than a declaration of war on Satan and his demonic forces. And the enemy knew it. He comes down with great rage because he knows his time is short. David Platt writes this, the birth of Christ on that day in Bethlehem inaugurated the death of this ancient servant serpent just as it had been promised back in Genesis 3.15. Like when the babe is born, the enemy knows his time is near. So, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown out. The The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to the earth and his angels with him. Listen to this description. He's called a great dragon because he's a destroyer. Like Jesus said, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's the ancient serpent. He's the one from Genesis chapter 3. He's the devil, literally the word accuser there. And he is Satan, literally the word adversary. The one who slanders us before God and he is called the deceiver. In fact, he leads the whole world astray. Remember, he's a liar. God expects too much. God is all talk. God is holding out on you. So, church, is is Christmas a fight or a festival? Is Is it about a war or is it about worship? Is the focus a battle or is it Bethlehem? Well, according to Revelation chapter 12, it's it's both. And as John teaches us, don't give yourself to the things that Jesus came to destroy. Like He came and His victory is sure. The things He came to destroy, things like lies and death and slavery to sin and addiction and rebellion and selfishness and greed and envy and lust and wrath, All of these will be crushed under the foot of this little baby in the manger. I mean, helpless. Lying there in his mom's arm. Nursing. And yet he is here to crush the serpent and to crush all of his works for all of eternity. We can count on that. We can count on that because Christmas 
itself announces the victory of that babe in the manger, the Son of God. I mean, Christmas announces the victory of the Son of God every bit as much as Easter does. I mean, there was never a doubt. There was never a thought in heaven that this was going to be some light and dark kind of a struggle where hoping against hope, maybe the good guys will win. This isn't the force. This isn't mysticism. Jesus steps onto planet earth and Satan is defeated. He is crushed under his boot like a cockroach. Like the cockroach that he is. And Satan knows it. The enemy knows it. And when he comes back, we will experience that victory. Imagine true justice. Like I've been just thinking, just watching the news over the last few months and thinking, is anything true? Like, is there anything true that's being said on the news? Is there anything true being said by politicians? I mean, they say something is true and then they contradict themselves like a month later with all new information. And it's like they've forgotten the other information. It's been memory hold. It's gone. And it's so frustrating. But guys, there's coming a day, right? When everything done in secret will be brought into the light. And it may not be in this lifetime, but there's going to come a day where true justice will reign I long for that day. Guys, there's going to come a day where true shalom, both external and internal, will be brought back. We'll be at harmony with one another, with God, with all of creation. And there's coming a day of complete and utter victory. You know, I I, uh, will be very critical of prosperity gospel preachers And the reason I am very critical of prosperity gospel preachers is that they're promising in the here and now what is only guaranteed in heaven. They have what theologians refer to as an over-realized eschatology. And yet, they're onto something, right? Because there is a victory. And we need to live in light of that victory now. Like we need to sing in light of that victory now. In fact, guys, that's really what Christmas is all about. I mean, the songs we sing are bigger than a babe in a manger. The songs we sing are bigger than just this woman and her betrothed husband and this little child. We sing things like, God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. You see, church, at Christmas we sing in anticipation of the victory. Now, I've told you all a couple weeks ago that I've been reading through... um, Tolkien's Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings over the last uh, couple months. I love those stories. I haven't read them since I was a kid, since I was a, a teenager in high school. And I'm reading them again for the very first time. And when I read them at 15, I mean, I was a, 
I mean, I don't think I was a nerdy kid. I mean, I did read a lot and played Dungeons and Dragons, so maybe I'm wrong. But, uh, like, I'm reading science fiction, I'm reading fantasy, I'm playing d and I'm doing all that kind of stuff, and I read this book, and something in me, like, it just resonated with something in my heart. It was so exciting and so bigger than life, and I longed for some sort of adventure like that. But I wasn't a believer at the time, and as I read the book, I missed so much of what this Christian author, J.R.R. Tolkien, was alluding to. In fact, guys with Christian ears, let's, let's hear uh, what he says at the end of The Return of the King. When victory is won, and all evil is defeated... As I read this, you tell me what you think Tolkien may have been studying. It says, Before the sun had fallen far from the noon, out of the east there came a great eagle flying, and he bore tidings beyond hope from the lords of the west crying, Sing now, ye people of the Tower of Anor, for the realm of Sauron, the evil, is ended forever and the dark tower is thrown down. Sing and rejoice, ye people of the Tower of Guard, for your watch hath not been in vain, and the black gate is broken, and your king has passed through, and he is victorious. Sing and be glad, all ye children of the West, for your king shall come again and he shall dwell among you all the days of his life. And the tree that was withered shall be renewed and he shall plant it in the high places and the city shall be blessed. Sing, all ye people. What do you think Tolkien was reading? And then there's the coronation of the king. And at the coronation of Aragorn, you read this, Gandalf set the white crown upon his head and said, Now come the days of the king. And may they be blessed while the thrones of the valor endure. And when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence, for it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time, tall as the sea kings of old. He stood above all that were near. Ancient of days, he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom set upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. And then Faramir cried out, Behold the king. I read those words and I remember as a 15-year-old thinking, wow. I mean, that's great writing. That resonates with me. Like, what is that? Because there's no more adventures, right? There's no more lands to conquer. There's no more even heroes. 
There's nothing beyond what we see right here and right now. And then a couple years later, I opened up the Bible and I read of a great king. Greater than Aragorn. Greater than Gandalf. Because this king was real and his story was true. And this king, as I read these words from Revelation chapter 3, they changed my life forever. Because the king said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I'll come in and I will dine with him and he with me. Guys, the Lord Jesus invites us this morning to dine with Him at the Lord's table. As the worship team comes forward, I want to pray for us. After the, during the first song, I want you to come forward and take the elements of communion. Take them back to your seats and we will take them together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, every book I've ever read, every cool movie, every adventure, all the things that I longed for, find their fulfillment in You. Everything else is derivative. Everything else is just a groaning and a longing and a hoping against hope. But we have a King who reigns forever, who has defeated the enemy, who's knocked down His tower and destroyed His walls and He marches in. And we come forward with the message, sing, for the Son of God is victorious. We thank You for that. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, King Solomon said that uh, God has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what He has done from beginning to end. Like we have this longing for more than the world has to offer. So we pick up a book or we go see a movie or we go on an incredible vacation afterwards, as awesome as it was, there was still something missing. We still walk away sadly disappointed. But when we open the Scriptures, we're told of a world where everything we ever long for is just a shadow of what He has in store for those who love Him and will trust in Him. Like the message of the Gospel as it goes out is that God has provided a way so that the sin in you can once and for all be defeated and you can live, you can walk in victory in Christ. That's what the cross was all about. On the night before, Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, this is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And then after supper, He took the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant, the new testament in My blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of Me. Lord Jesus, I thank You for salvation not earned and not deserved. As we've been talking about through this series, you came as light to a dark world. And God, we were in darkness. I was darkness. 
You came to call sinners to repent. Lord, I'm not righteous. I'm a sinner. And You came to destroy the works of Satan. And yet I was sold over to those works. I lived in that world. I was a slave to the prince and a power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And I was by my very nature a child of wrath. Well, Jesus, thank You for the sacrifice that You made on the cross, taking my sin, giving me salvation and victory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, something's broken and most people can't put their finger on it. It's like the line from the Matrix. It's like a splinter in our mind driving us crazy. Driving us mad. Like we say that mankind is for the most part good. I'm a good person and yet we look at the world and see no evidence of that. We see darkness. We see sin. We see the works of the enemy. Like even atheist uh, Bertrand Russell, the guy who wrote uh, Why I'm Not a Christian, says, said that the center of me is always in pain. A curious, strong pain. A longing for something beyond what the world has to offer. Where does that come from? Like guys, we were made for more. We were made to enjoy shalom with the Creator And Jesus has provided a way for us to have that. The Prince of Shalom on the cross took your sin to the grave. He took your death and died for it. He rose from the dead victorious. And if you want to spend eternity with Him forever and have meaning and purpose now, all you have to do is place your trust in Him and what He's done. Ask Him to save you. And He will. Hope to see you back here on Christmas Eve for one of our three services. Until then, God bless you church and Merry Christmas.